Well, good morning, everybody. I'd like to start out this morning by just having a, a simple word of prayer. So let's, let's pray. Father God, once again, we want to thank you so much for this beautiful day that you've given us. Lord, I just pray that in this moment, at this time, right now, we can sit before you and just open ourselves to you. God, I pray that you will help to, to take the distractions away from our minds. God, I pray that our hearts will be open to you, that we can hear your spirits leading, that we can hear your words and know you better through looking at your word. We thank you so much, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, this morning we're going to be continuing on in a series called Graphic Redemption. This is a series leading up to, to Easter, and we're asking a number of questions about why certain things had to happen in this Easter story. We, we asked the question last week, why Jesus needed to be rejected, and why he was rejected. And this week we're going to be looking at the reasoning why Jesus was deserted. And I think to get a full picture and a full understanding of deserted and, and what that means, uh, we need to start by dissecting the word a little bit. <laughs> deserted is a very simple word. It's spelled D-E-S-S-E-R-T-E-D, -E -E right? Deserts? <laughs> so, okay, so if Jesus was deserted, it wouldn't exactly mean that he was left alone. It would probably look a little different, wouldn't it? Well, maybe this is what it would look like if Jesus was deserted. Now, i got to tell you, as a diabetic, <laughs> being deserted is simultaneously my worst nightmare and my greatest hope. <laughs> but the real question is, why did Jesus' friends, why did his closest followers, why did the people that immediately surround Jesus desert him with one S? Can you imagine being deserted? That feeling of, of loneliness? The word deserted is meant to bring up an image of a desert of this lonely, solitary place where nothing really lives, where it's dry and you're alone. It's a horrible place to try to live, being deserted. Why was Jesus left in this horrible, solitary place? Why was he deserted? Well, I want to use Jesus' words to actually illustrate exactly what happened to him on those final days. And you can find this teaching in Mark chapter 4, verses 3 to 20. Now these are Jesus' exact words. Listen, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on the rocky places, where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly, because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched. And they withered because they had no root. Other seeds fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants so that they did not bear grain. Still other seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, multiplying 30, 60, or even 100 times. Now, I like this passage and I like this chunk of scripture because in it, Jesus isn't content just to tell a story to illustrate what he's talking about. He actually gets a little annoyed with his disciples because they're standing there looking at him like, see, what Jesus, what are you talking about? And he actually explains to them explicitly what this parable, what is what we call them, what this parable means. And in his explanation, he says this, Jesus said to them, don't you understand the parable? Don't you get this story? How 
then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like the seed sown in the rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only for a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop 30, 60, or even 100 times what was sown. <clears throat> the interesting thing to me about this, this, this story and this explanation is that Jesus is not conducting an exercise in theory. He's not giving a, a child's story so that the disciples can just, oh yeah, that's nice, and then walk away. He's telling the disciples something specific, and he's saying it to his closest followers. And I think what he's trying to tell them is, don't assume that you are the good soil. That's a little harsh, right? How do I know that this message was to his 12 disciples? Well, let's see what happens in the story that Jesus meets the end with. The first disciple that we're going to take a look at was an infamous one. His name is Judas Iscariot. You probably know the name Judas. It probably rings out as someone, a betrayer, someone who's awful, someone who, who will leave you to, to search for his own good. <clears throat> But Judas didn't desert the sorry, Judas didn't desert Jesus when all the other disciples did. If you remember the story at all, after the Last Supper, Jesus takes his disciples to go to a garden where Jesus wants to pray, and Jesus is by himself praying, he keeps going, and the disciples keep falling asleep, he keeps waking them up, says, Come on, guys, let's pray, and they keep falling asleep. And then eventually a mob comes, led by Judas, and there's a whole bunch of soldiers, and they arrest Jesus in that place, and then the disciples scatter. They just run away. But Judas actually deserted Jesus a whole lot before that. And I want to take a look at his story and get a little idea of his character. In John chapter 12, we find a little understanding of who this Judas guy was. Here at a dinner was given for Jesus. Let me start that again. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took out a pin of pure nard an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of this perfume. Beautiful story. One of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It's worth a year's wages. Now he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And he saw a fairly large cash cow right in front of him. If you ever think that the guys in the Bible had an advantage over you in terms of dealing with sin, because they had Jesus physically present in front of them, I want you to remember this story. Judas was handpicked by Jesus. He was one of the twelve disciples. He was an important guy. He followed Jesus around for three years witnessing all kinds of miracles 
and the amazing teachings of Jesus, the stuff that we don't even have written down. He saw the ins and the outs. He knew the character of Jesus. He saw Jesus walk on water. He saw him heal people, bring that Lazarus guy that we just mentioned back to life. He heard Peter's confession of him when he said that you are the Lord. He knew who Jesus was, and yet there was no significant change in him when it came to sin. He was like seed that was scattered on the path, or maybe in the thorns. He didn't allow the Word of God to penetrate deep into him. He didn't allow it to change him. He controlled all of that and kept it all up on the surface, and deep down allowed himself to maintain a selfish nature. And he was greedy. He probably knew a lot of the Word. He probably knew the parts about giving, because that was all about money. But he ignored the parts that had to deal with compassion, with hope, with integrity, with honesty. He just ignored those parts. And they didn't convict him. They didn't change him from within. And Satan had been looking for a time to strike at Jesus. It tells us that in Scripture. And Satan finds his accomplice in Judas. Now I want to read to you exactly what happens with Judas. But I'm going to do it in a paraphrase of my own personal version. Now it's really important. I'm treating the Word of God through my own words. You need to look this up, and if I'm wrong, you need to come and you need to, to tell me that. And you need to show me where I'm wrong. So these are the three passages that I use to come up with my own version. They'll be displayed here on the screen. Matthew 26, verses 14 to 16. Mark 14, verses 10 to 11. And Luke 22, verses 3 to 6. Write these passages down and look them up for yourself. Because if I'm wrong, then I need to be made correct. And you need to show me the right way. Alright? So write these passages down. Matthew 26, 14 to 16. Mark 14, 10 to 11. And Luke 22, verses 3 to 6. This is my paraphrased version. <clears throat> then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. He went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I hand him over to you? Meaning, if I hand Jesus over to you. They were delighted to hear this, and they promised to give him money. He consented, and they counted out thirty silver coins. From then on, he watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over to them when no crowd was present. How deep of a change had Jesus caused in Judas? Not very deep. We can only be changed as far as we allow Jesus to change us. We have to actually give that control over to him because if not, what's already there will stay there and will maintain its authority over you. And tell your heart what to do, and tell your mind what to do, and you will be completely controlled by it. Judas had no real change happen in his life. In fact, he kept everything on the surface, that when Satan came by, Satan was able to just pluck it away from him and just take it. He didn't even question what was going on. It wasn't the Spirit of God that caused him to go to the chief priest and say, Hey, I've got Jesus, how much will you give me for him? That wasn't anything spiritual. That wasn't anything of God. We know it was Satan. When we read the parable of the sower, all of us, when we read that, so quickly just want to say, yes, I am the good soil. The word can be spread in me, 
And it's going to go deep. And it's going to be rooted in my heart. And I'm going to be a brand new person. But so often, that is not the case. Jesus spent years with Judas, teaching him, guiding him, being a friend and a mentor to him. And this didn't cause a significant change in Judas. Judas was a path, or, or perhaps the thorny soil, or a thorny path, but he wasn't the good soil. He had plenty of words sown into him, but it was all taken away. At his first real opportunity, Judas deserts Jesus. And what for? 30 pieces of silver? He deserts him because no real change is taking place in his life. But that was Judas. I mean, none of us have ever met him. This is 2,000 years ago. What about us? What's the reality of our situation? Has the Word of God taken root deep into your heart? Have I given up control? Have I surrendered my sin to Him, let alone my entire life to Him? You know, Judas may have sold out for 30 pieces of silver, but I know in my own life I have sold out for much, much less. I have intentionally walked into simple behaviors, knowing full well what I was doing was wrong. I have intentionally picked fights with people. I have intentionally allowed my mind to linger on things that it shouldn't linger on. I have misbehaved. I have done things that are not of God, and all of that is deserting Christ, and all of it is much less than 30 pieces of silver. And the result of this? Well, I'm not the good soil. The result is paranoid faith. Do you know what I mean by that? Have you ever experienced this? I mean, always doubting what you believe. Always, always fearing the punishment of God rather than expecting the grace of God. You have regret and remorse, which aren't bad things when it comes to sin, but you have a paralyzing form of it. It's a form where all you can see is, is the judgment of God, and you fear that judgment, but not in a healthy way, in a way that makes you go, no, I just can't deal with that. I can't be near Him. I can't go to Him. I can't say anything to Him. People with seed on the path or in the thorns generally give up after a time, and they generally start faking it after a time. They pretend that they have a relationship with Christ, but really think that He wants nothing to do with them at all, that they're not worth the relationship that He so gladly offers. And eventually these people just give up on faith entirely. After all, who wants to live with daily torment like that? And this is what Judas chooses. Matthew 27, verses 3-5. to When Judas, who had betrayed Him, saw that Jesus was condemned, Jesus hadn't even put on the cross yet. But he saw the verdict. He knew what was about to come. He knew that Jesus was about to be killed because of the actions that he took. He was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied. That's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. He went away and he hanged himself. We can't assume that we're the good soil. But Judas did not desert Jesus when the others did. The others all gathered together and they, they fled after he was arrested. And when they had the chance to stand for him, most of them disappeared. And one of the disciples that disappeared is actually quite a surprise. This guy, he's not the same as Judas, but he's as famous as Judas. Except 
that he is a very, very excited man. This is a guy by the name of Peter. And he's always very, very excited about his faith in Christ. In fact, in Matthew 16, Jesus asks his disciples, What about you guys? What do you, who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He's really, really excited about this. And Peter was probably an A-minus student. Uh, he walked on water with Jesus. He was there from the very beginning. He often answered questions. He was a leader in the group. He was a fairly important person in this group of twelve. And Jesus even at one point calls him the rock. And he is such an important person to this group. And I don't know exactly what Peter thought of himself, but I know one thing's for sure. He believed that Jesus was the Messiah. He believed that Jesus was the Son of God. And he believed that Jesus had made a significant change in his own life. And he also believed that nothing, absolutely nothing, would ever change that. And this is what he says to Jesus at the Last Supper, Matthew 26. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, and he's talking directly to Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. And I think that's a really important verse. All the other disciples said the same. Then a few hours later, that wonderful and powerful sentiment just evaporates. The other disciples scattered. And Peter actually starts out pretty good. He, he tries to defend Jesus when the mob is there. And then afterwards, he follows them around, winds up in the courts of the Sanhedrin, which is, that was the place where Jesus was being taken to be put on trial. So he winds up in the enemy's courtyard, and he's standing there warning himself by a fire, and three different people come up to him and say, wait a second, you're one of those guys, aren't you? That guy, he's, he's on trial right now. You're one of his followers. I know you. And three times he says to them, no, I don't know what you're talking about. I am not one of those guys. I don't know him. And after he finishes saying that the third time, a rooster crows and he realizes what he's just done, what he's just said. And I'm sure he remembers the word of God very, very clearly when he said to him, you will disown me three times. As it turns out, Peter the rock was actually rocky soil. He did not stand firm, but he gave in to denying Christ just so that perhaps he could stay close to his leader. His intentions were probably good, but he failed. When trouble came, just like Jesus said it would, his growth was completely ripped out because the root was shallow. Trouble came and he faltered. So let me ask you this question. Are you rocky soil? Like Peter, you have a bit of a safety net. Right now, we're in a church building. These walls literally protect us. And it is so simple to proclaim that Jesus is Lord in here. It's so easy to, to, to look Him in, in the face and say, Yes, God, I accept You and I love You. Speak into my life. Help me be the person that You want me to be. But when we're out there, and we're not protected by these walls, and we're not protected by our leaders, and we don't have the support of a friend, do we cave? Do we give in? Do we deny Jesus? Peter did. And the result of it? Well, you can imagine. Guilt, shame, fear, 
he gives up and he runs away, presumably locks himself up in that upper room where they had their last supper. He can't bring himself to face Jesus, who he knows will be coming out soon. He can't stay and watch what happens, knowing full well what he did. We can't assume that we're the good soil. When we read the parable of the sower, though, we do hear that there are people who are good soil. We can't assume that it's us, but there's got to be somebody, right? And I think that there is one disciple who deserves a mention here. A little ray of hope. This disciple was the best friend of Jesus. He's referred to as the disciple whom Jesus loved. His name is John. And he was there from the very beginning. In fact, he was there before Peter was, probably. He wasn't as flashy as Peter. He didn't get all the screen time that Peter got in Scripture. John was much more reflective, much more contemplative. And from the beginning, it seemed, John allowed Jesus to be a game changer in his own life. John doesn't abandon Jesus like all the other disciples do. He was the surprise to everybody because he wasn't the star, he wasn't the leader. But he was Jesus' best friend. In John 18, you see this. This is verses 15 to 16. Simon Peter and another disciple, this other disciple is John. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus because this disciple was known to the high priest. He went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. So John actually got to go in first. He got to follow Jesus right on in. But Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the servant girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. So John was actually the one that allowed Peter to get in and get close. And I think it's amazing because John would have seen what happened to Peter. Peter runs off, but John stays right there. He knows that Jesus needs someone, and so he stays there with him. And eventually he's at the foot of the cross, or he's nearby to the cross. And this is what happens in John 19. When Jesus looks out from the cross and sees his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. John's reward for his faithfulness, for, for not fleeing, for not denying Jesus, isn't secrets. It's not power. It's not wealth. It's not some sort of mystical thing. John's reward is implicit trust. Jesus gives him something that's very important to him, his own mother. Because he knows that his mom, without any man in the family in that culture, she's going to be in a lot of trouble. And so she has John take care of her. John winds up being the good soil. He does not waver. And instead, his relationship with Christ deepens to the point where he actually gets to take care of our Savior's family. The good soil stays firm. And the result? John had peace. There is no scene in Scripture where John needs to come back to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. There is no scene in Scripture where Jesus comes to John and says, Oh, I know you messed up, but that's okay. I've got plans for you. John had peace, and his character was built. And the relationship with Christ, especially after the resurrection, must have grown by leaps and bounds. When everything he knew to be true about Jesus comes true, man, he was able to stand firm and know for a fact, with certainty, that Jesus is who he claimed to be. 
Well, are you the good soil? Now, I know this is a little harsh. And I know many of you are probably looking at yourself and going, Oh, man, did I mess up. Oh, man, I'm not the good soil. I know, because I ask that question of myself a lot. And a lot of times I get really freaked out. But there's a term in gardening. It's called tilling. You ever heard of this term before? It means to turn over or to work through. Through this process, a gardener is able to reach the soil that's on the top and mix it with the soil that's on the bottom. Through this process, a gardener is able to pull weeds, remove rocks. Through this process, a gardener is able to make any soil good soil as long as there's some nutrients in it. The one thing that we don't have in, in the parable about the sower is the idea that Jesus is actually a farmer, a gardener. Jesus is willing to take soil and till it, and till it, and till it, until eventually that soil is good soil. And we know this because Peter gets brought back in. After Jesus comes back from the grave, he goes to Peter and says, Look, you messed up, but I've got plans for you. Good plans. I need you to be good soil. Let me make you good soil. Take care of my sheep. Feed my lambs. Go take care of the church. I trust you, Peter. And Peter's reinstated, and he goes boldly and becomes good soil. Now, we don't know what would have happened to Judas. Judas chose to end it, to take responsibility for his sins and kill himself because of it. But I am willing to assume, and you may think that I'm wrong on this, and that's your right, but I would be willing to stake everything I know on this, that had Judas survived, had he, had he found it within himself to go back to God and to ask for forgiveness, to stand at the foot of Jesus and say, I am sorry, I repent, I, I know now who you are. I am willing to bet anything that Jesus would have reinstated him to. I know this because there's a guy later on in Scripture named Paul whose main idea for his life was to end Christianity. He wanted to wipe out knowledge of Jesus entirely. He killed many, many people, and he did it saying that he was doing it in the name of God. And Jesus chose him to be the main instrument of spreading the church and to write half the New Testament. If he can do that with a man like that, he can forgive anything and till any soil to be good soil. You may not be good soil naturally. You may be rocky or hard, or there may be all kinds of thorns trying to choke you out. But the good news is Jesus is there to till your soil until you're good. And He does this because we deserted en masse to God with our sin, and He said, no more. I am going to change the game for everyone. And all I'm asking today is that when that word gets sown into your life, if you are rocky soil or, or whatever, let Him till you from the inside out. He does this through the power of the Spirit, and it's all because of the actions of Christ.